Hey, before we get started with today's episode, I just have a few announcements. We've reached the season one finale, and I cannot believe how amazing of a journey this has been, getting to talk about this book with all the different guests and to really unpack this incredible story. I can't thank each and every one of you, the listeners, enough for your support of me and of Outer Rim Reads. I've truly been blown away by all of you and your eagerness to embark on this journey with me. And from the bottom of my heart, all I can say is thank you, thank you. Your support and continued support means so much to me. Before I let you in on Season 2's material, I just wanted to let you all know about the inter-season break coming up. After this episode airs, I will be taking a break between the end of this season and the start of Season 2. There will be no more episodes for the rest of August. This will give me time to continue mapping out Season 2, to record, and to take my foot off the gas just a bit. Outer Rim Reads will be returning on September 1st with the first of five inter-season break episodes. And my vision for these episodes is to do something a bit different from the chapter-by-chapter rhythm we've been going at. My goal is to freshen things up a bit and to get some episodes out to you that'll be different, new, and fun. I won't spoil what all five of those episodes will look like, but I can say that the first two episodes will be comparing and contrasting the adaptations of Thrawn and Orinda Price from this book to how they appear in the Star Wars Rebels TV show. As for the next three episodes of the break, well, you'll just have to find out. In regards to the long-term view of this show, I have decided to shift my scope from covering both legends and canon novels to just covering novels from Star Wars canon. Seeing that there are so many new canon books coming out, I just think that this switch makes more sense for the pace of my show and staying as up-to-date as I can to the canon with the material that I cover. In regards to the short-term future, we will be covering Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice in Season 2, and I'm so excited to walk through this book with you all. I think Claudia is one of the best writers in the Star Wars canon, and I think the story she tells in Master and Apprentice is one of my favorites that I've read so far. This book takes place before The Phantom Menace and centers around Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I am so keen to get into that read with you all. The first episode of Season 2 will air on November 3rd at 8 a.m. Eastern, so stay tuned until then. And so, without further ado, here is Episode 16 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 16 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in legends and canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, the season one finale, we will be finishing up Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 28 through the epilogue, and I'm joined today by my friend Connor Floyd. Connor, how are you doing, man? Thanks for being on the show today. I'm fantastic, and thank you so much for having me. It's the finale. You made it. This is the episode to be on if there was ever uh, ever a choice you had to make. This is It's good to have you uh, for these particular chapters too and a returning guest you already know how the flow goes we've got some really good material to cover today i'll ask uh, your thoughts after i give my chapter summary for chapter 28 and then we can get stuck right in and uh, talk all about it 
Arinda Price and her parents attempt to escape Paragosto City before the Imperial assault begins. Agent Gudry shows up to the house, furious that Price tried to trick him. He informs Price he rigged all the explosives in the facility to his comlink. A brief struggle ensues after Gudry refuses to bring her parents with them, and Price is able to disarm and kill him. Aboard the Chimera, Thrawn tells Yularen to send a special unit into the city to Price's home in order to retrieve her. Suddenly, multiple groups of insurgent ships appear out of hyperspace, bearing down on the Chimera. Thrawn reveals he had TIE reinforcements hidden in the repair barges attached to his three light cruisers, and they are able to win the battle. Once her parents are safe with Imperial troops, Price detonates the explosives in the facility, and Thrawn summons her aboard the Chimera. There is a lot of drama in this chapter. Um, I will just ask your thoughts before we get into the nitty-gritty. What are your thoughts generally on this chapter 28, this roller coaster ride? I loved it. Um, I, it was so good. Um, just hearing you do the recap, I was just like, oh yeah, and then that happens, and then okay, okay, good, good. I loved it. The whole thing's so tense. It's nonstop. It feels like you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. It feels like the high-strung violins just playing in the background. And just listening to you do that recap was just giving me goosebumps as well. I, I freaking loved it. Yeah, because we had all of this buildup in chapter uh, 26, I think it was, that was really setting the scene for what was to happen with Price in in this chapter specifically, you know, going into the city, infiltrating with with Gudry, reuniting with her parents, and and she gives him the slip, and it just sets the stage perfectly for everything that goes down here because we open this chapter where, in Price's point of view, she's at her parents' home and they are packing their things. You know, it's like Boba, pack your things, we're leaving. It's like Price, <laughs> you know, guys, pack your things, we gotta go, and it was tense. It was an emotionally powerful scene where her parents, you know, on the spur of the moment, they're being asked to pick up everything and go. They've done this before when Price asked them, you know, hey, you guys have to leave Lothal to Bataan. You know, the family's mind is being sold to the Empire. We have to get up and leave. This here, these are much different circumstances where, you know, there are Star Destroyers right above. Everyone knows what's coming. And it's it's almost out of a movie. The scene is like almost out of a movie where they're just trying to pack their things quickly. And I love this little moment where Price's mother hands her a stack of data cards yes. and she tells Price, you know, because Price is asking, what are these? Why do we need these? And her parents are saying, you know, these are the records of your life, basically photo albums and, and video yeah. uh, recordings. They say that these records even include dance recitals that Price <laughs> so uh, participated in. Um, these are your baby videos. <laughs> baby Price, you know, this <laughs> all the embarrassing stuff. And which first begged the question, what kind of dance do you think that Price <laughs> was involved in? What kind of vibes did she give off? I, I imagine just Arinda Price with, you know, just, just busting out an Irish, you know, tap dance. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what, what kind of dance would Arinda Price have been involved in when she was younger? And also, what was the, what was a childhood like on Lothal where there was enough of a child, like a children's community where they were able to get together and be like, we're going to celebrate and express ourselves, guys. <laughs> It's like I never see Lothal that way. <laughs> we see a lot of emotion, and and I've said this over and over and over in this season, a lot of humanity on Price's side that I feel that we did not get enough of, if 
at all in the Rebels TV show. And I, I just like this moment because her father, Talmor, is saying that, and I quote, you're the most important part of our life together, Arinda. And I wonder, does Price feel the same towards her parents, where she is now? We've seen her progression, her arc develop, and we've seen, you know, how far she's willing to go to save her parents. Do you think that she feels the same way here? That's one of my favorite parts about this chapter is just the amount of questions that I feel like the reader, no matter who you are, just suddenly get for this character that we feel like through this whole story, she has been ruthless, cutthroat. She's been faced with, you know, do I betray my friends to move forward? She's shown that she's unwavering in her own quest, whether it's of a professional endeavor or a personal endeavor. I think it's really interesting to now, like you said, like we come to this part and it's kind of like, well, does she care about her family the way mom and dad clearly care about her? And I feel like I was struggling with getting a definitive answer for that. On one hand, I want to say, well, yeah, she's she's following through with her promise, right? She told her she'd come back for them. And she's kind of fulfilling this familial obligation to them as well. Um, you know, hopefully it's steeped in love. But honestly, it's kind of like Thrawn. She's kind of difficult to read on what her motivations are. Is yeah. it is it just a promise or is she doing it out of love for her family and she's, you know, looking out for them? I'd like to think that she cares about them a lot and that maybe like that is the only anchor of humanity in her life um, that isn't steeped in like imperial uh, lifestyle. But I think it is. I think it is. Because in the in the last chapter, actually, there's the moment when, um, you know, she fakes mom is getting sick and she yeah. goes up. Um, Gudry's like, wait, what's going on? And she's like, oh, um, mom's sick. We're going to take off. Uh, good luck on your thing. And Gudry mentions like, oh, the old cow flips over now. And she notes that like you just called out my mom. We'll fucking talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a long-winded answer for me to say yes. I think she loves her family. <laughs> We're all about long-winded answers here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because uh, it is very complex. And we see tension in this chapter between Price's desire to, you know, kind of fight for herself and also fight for her family. Because, like you're saying, in, in this next scene, Gudry shows up and and he already gave us kind of bad vibes where he called her her mom an old cow for no reason you know he's like <laughs> yeah. we we can gather that he's just another typical imperial who is only out for himself which is you know kind of similar vibes most of the times from price as well but we see another side of the coin to her here so gudry is He's ticked because, like you were saying, she had told him, "Yeah, my mom's sick. We got to go home." And they left him in the in the mining facility to plant explosives on the shield generator. Uh, or she knew that's what he was doing. Her father thought he was looking for a friend, um, but he realizes here that he's been duped by Price, and she tries to quickly lie, saying like, "Oh, she felt better after we gave her some some tea." And he he sees right through that instantly like where's the teacup and she's like shit um and <laughs> i had a problem with that part actually go ahead yeah because i i had some thoughts as well <laughs> she was she was like in her head she's like oh i shouldn't have created a lie out of nowhere like i don't have a teacup why would i do that look she said she made tea for her mom not for herself how do you know she's not drinking it right now dude like That's i'm fair. like if i tell you i made tea for someone and if your response is yeah well where's your teacup like homie i might not drink the tea i made it for someone else that's an incredibly unfair uh, assumption you've made I, obviously, it was Gudry. obviously it was fairly placed in the situation, but I was just like, Arenda, you can lie a little bit more. Come on. But she ended up kind of like choking on that, where you yeah. know, if she thought it out a little bit more, she could have given the answer, the explanation that you just gave. But we see her reflecting on this here that she is not on 
her A game at this moment. It's true, yeah. Where she's thinking, I gave what she thinks to be an easily exposable lie. She reflects that she and her parents, she's been moving them kind of slowly. Like they could have been more urgent. She should have had them packed by now and gone. And we're seeing that in this kind of pressure where she knows how high the stakes are, surprisingly, she's not she's not up to the challenge at this moment. It was interesting to see this weakness from Price here where her thoughts are divided between the plan that she has, like, all right, we got to go. And then also this emotion where she knows that she can't just like force her parents to she, yeah. she needs to give them the chance to really take the records of their lives and, and her life and all that. We see this kind of that tension there between her desires and what she knows her parents want and need in this moment. Because this is, you know, pretty much the moment before it it all goes to hell. And Gudry kind of gives some insight into that because he tells Price that he's rigged all the explosives in the facility, which they had seen on their uh, initial walk through. And... Price goes on to try and convince him that we're bringing my parents with me. And Gudry is insisting no. And he says here, quote, <laughs> I don't care if they can turn into Arcanian dragons and fly us out. He's not taking them with him. And first of all, I did not know because I Googled Arcanian dragons in Star Wars. These are legit dragons. Are they I really? I have no clue. Yeah, they are. Like, I didn't like the whole think to wings. Them. And all. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, awesome. Because I know there's like crate dragons, which are kind of like. I think they're like lizards. They're they're like giant Komodo dragons, but not like you know dragon dragons. And here we are, like that's this is confirmed by Gudry. You know, apparently he knows some lore. They're Arcanian yeah. dragons. I'm glad you wrote that down because as soon as I was like, God, cow and Arcanian dragons. He's filled with the the animal metaphors for these guys, right? <laughs> a little bit more of a classy insult here uh, from Gudry instead of just calling like a, an old cow, like, oh, Arcanian dragon. That's a little bit more legit. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it all blows up from there where, you know, a brief struggle ensues when her mother appears at the top of the staircase and sees this blaster that Gudry has in his hand that he's appeared with. And Price tries to, you know, throw the data cards in his face and they have like this, this physical struggle. She even breaks his elbow and he's able to get a good hit on her head. And when she's staggering, he's saying, we got to go. And she tells him one more time, my parents are coming with us. And he says, and this is really the nail in the coffin for him. He says, and I quote, let him die here with all the rest of these outer rim freaks. And Price goes on to shoot him three times dead. It's so good. It really is. I mean, it's it's a quick moment, but it feels like such a perfectly written, perfectly choreographed, politically packed action sequence of two people inside of a close quarters room. It's two hits. Actually, it's it's technically it's like five hits because it's it's two physical hits and then three shots out of the blaster and yeah. he's down. And again, it's like we've seen Arinda be this ruthless with her words. Now we got to see her actually pay the bill in full right there with a gun. And, and it defended her family. It kind of goes back to this original question. Like, I, it's interesting to see this. We haven't seen it yet, the whole book. And let them all die. Bang, bang, bang. That's it. That's it. It's and, so and good. You're right, because we've seen in this book her retaliate and act against opponents, other players in the game, in different ways. You know, political moves against Gadi and, and ranking. This is the first time, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that she's killed someone. Yeah. to get what she wants. This is a whole new side to how far she's... And I feel like this chapter is just how far are you willing to go? And Price is... If she wasn't up to the game a few moments ago, she is in it now, knees deep. She has killed an Imperial agent who was sent in there with her for her family. And 
her mother is, is shocked. You know, a guy was just shot right in front of her and, and Price gives her like this lie. He said like, oh, he probably would have killed me too once we got out, which she knows is not true. But she knows that's exactly what her mother needs to hear in order to justify her actions. Yeah. And we get these thoughts from Price that Gudgery had threatened her parents. He'd gotten in her way. He'd paid the cost. And it's as simple as that. Like you're saying, it's it's five hits, a relatively quick scene. And we have a dead Imperial agent and Price means business. Yeah. You're nailing it on the head with all of these acts. I mean, I guess it also shows how great this chapter is. It's like, you're going down the list of all the quotes I've written, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah we're going to get to the... Oh, and he said it! Yeah! Um, but yeah, that's what... And it's it's something else to think about, too, is that this is a really intense circumstance for an Imperial agent, even a fucking Imperial governor to be in, right? There's the looming shadow of a Star Destroyer, of the Chimera, in the orbital plane of this planet. Shit's about to hit the fan, and they're sneaking into an insurgent-filled town, getting parents and getting out. It felt like Rogue One. This entire, like, part yeah. of the story feels like a, like, high-octane kind of edge of your seat, just like, I don't know who's going to make it out alive right now. Like, this is, this, suddenly it feels like everyone is just as vulnerable as the last person, and this is really, really cool. It's a nice change of pace since, like, it feels like all of the confrontation has been dialogue-driven. It feels like you know, to get a solution or an answer to, to something, it's always been about conversation and outwitting the next person. I mean, it's Thrawn and Night Swan, right? It's all they've been doing. And we've had some we've had some really cool ship battles, but this just felt like the first time you're face-to-face with an enemy. You're seeing the whites of their eyes go out. It was dramatic, and it was brilliantly written. I loved it. 10 out of 10. Yeah, I think you're right that there hasn't been a lot of purely action-packed scenes in this book where, like you're saying, face-to-face with the enemy, kind of just like a really like a thriller-type scene. They've been few and far between in this book, which I think is a testament to Zahn's powerful writing, where he's able to just create, like you're saying, really powerful dialogue-driven scenes, and then we get this climactic ending where, yeah, Price literally has killed a man, and they're on their way out, and in this next scene, it transitions away from Price. We're back on the Chimera. The long and short of this scene is that they had been right about suspecting insurgent ships having escaped uh, Admiral Kinshara, who was sent to another planet to deal with other insurgents. So they figured that there are 30 or so ships that could appear out of hyperspace at any moment to attack them. And Thrawn, you know, he tells Yularen to send this this force, this uh, small squad, to Price's house to get her and he pieces together that this is the most logical place that she and Gudry, if they were compromised, that's where they would probably head. And when he, the moment that he assigned that squad to head to her house, I was like, Oh no, <laughs> yeah. this is not going to be good. Um, with whatever price has been planning. And, and right now we see the stakes are raised yet another level with this Imperial squad going in, and I was thinking this this can't end well. Yeah, it felt like like throwing a party at your parents' house and then like calling you and be like, "Hey, we turned around, we forgot our scarf. Uh, we'll be right there." And you're like, "Oh God!" <laughs> can I can I bring something up really quickly about Gudry? Oh yeah, totally. now poor dude is dead. I shouldn't say poor dude. He's a jackass. But yeah, he was something he did that I just I it tickled me so much is when he's like he's sitting there with the gun looking right at her and he's like, "Oh, you're still here." He's like, "Yeah, I got the explosives. It took me four caps, by the way. Got the gun at the shield generator. That's right. I made it to the shield generator." And it just felt so much like a middle schooler being like, "I did the thing without you, jerk." And it was it was just it was a really just it was a it was a goofy little section that I really enjoyed. Just like he's childish. But I guess I he's like Imperial. 
I like that. I mean, yeah, it, 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 that kind of goes with the territory of being imperial, where it's like, well, my job was better than yours. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kept four explosives. What did your cow of a mom do? <laughs> your Arcanian dragon can't do shit. <laughs> yeah. She can't fly. <laughs> Uh, he, yeah, he just not a great look for him <laughs> until his last. <laughs> kind of right on cue with Eli wondering, hey, there's a bunch of ships that could pop out of hyperspace any moment. Lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> Multiple groups appear out of hyperspace, and we get these fresh doubts from Eli again, where he's like, is this Thrawn's plan to sacrifice these ships, these three cruisers, so that we can have a fighting chance on the Star Destroyer? And I love this scene where everyone's at their battle stations now wondering what the heck they're going to do. Because as powerful as a Star Destroyer is, against 30 ships, that's a lot to, to handle. For sure. And I, I love this quote from Eli where he, it says, Eli turned to see, and I quote, Thrawn walking back along the command walkway, not hurrying as if he were concerned about being too close to the viewport when the attack began, but with the measured tread of a man secure in his plan and his command. And I thought that sums Thrawn up very well. But I was wondering, is this just part of his regular behavior here? Or do you think that he is kind of trying to set a good example to his crew where he might be panicking on the inside like, oh shit, I might have expected this to happen, but still this is something we need to deal with now. Do you think he's trying to set a good example here to try and not have everyone else around him panic if they see him come? Or do you just think this is his natural chiss behavior where he's just not troubled outwardly i believe that he most likely holds that philosophy in you know in the in the fear of danger and like potential negative outcome the leader needs to maintain composure but also at the same time like as a chiss and with with that his understanding of all things you know 4d chess it kind of looked to me like it was just simply him waiting for the moment to see if as we're going to get to a section where, you know, what his plan is building up to. I think we've learned enough that um, when it comes to the part where his plan needs to start happening, he's very calm and composed about it. Meanwhile, Eli's sitting there stressed out and biting his fingernails on the side. Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both, though. I think I think it's him maintaining composure for the sake of the crew as well as just quietly making sure his plan's going to come through. Yeah, because you know, he does have a plan as we know what happens. But at the same time, you know, you're, like you said, Eli is, he, you know, he sees Thrawn just being so calm here and, and he's wondering, what are you doing? Yeah. We need, like, you need to act. What are we going to do? And Thrawn is, meanwhile, telling his crew, all right, instruct a couple of the Imperial troops on the ground, a couple of their, the forces we have surrounding the city to open fire so as to create a diversion for the special squad to go in. And Eli's like, sir, what about the ship? And I love how this yes. scene closes out here, where yeah, I'm just going to read it here. And I quote, <laughs> Thrawn says, Yes, Commander, the ships. Thrawn agreed, turning again to gaze out the viewport. Let us now discover how well I have read our opponent. And whether we're about to die, Eli muttered. Yes, Thrawn said, and whether we are about to die. That's, yes, what a way so to end that scene. What a way to end that scene. You know, we know who Thrawn is from Rebels. And so I have to say there's few points in this book that have very, very specific, like pivotal Thrawn bits of dialogue where I just, his voice is right there. That was it. Just the, yes, and whether we're about to die. It was just like, oh God, he's got <laughs> yeah. him in his grasp. It's so good. He knows here, I think there is a, a confidence about him that we've seen where he knows his plan is probably going to work. 
he knows that they have the TIE Fighters and the Repair Barges ready to attack the opponents from behind. Because what the insurgent ships did coming out of hyperspace, they flew towards the light cruisers, and everyone thought they're about to take out these three crippled ships. But then they turn towards the Chimera, where the Chimera can't attack them without hitting the cruisers behind them. So it's a very, you know, they kind of took a page out of Thrawn's book from Scrim Island when he used those cruisers to shield the Chimera. These attacking ships are using the cruisers behind them to kind of shield them from any defensive fire. And I wonder here, we know Thrawn's confident in his plan. We can guess that much from what we've read in this book. Do you think that where he's agreeing with Eli here, is he? Is this a point of maybe empathy from him where he's trying to reach Eli where he is and the fear that he is in that moment? Do you think he's trying to meet Eli where he's at? Or do you think that he's even considering the possibilities? Have I been outwitted at the crucial moment? They've done such a good job at painting Thrawn as someone who is just overly confident. I mean, I could sit here and describe Thrawn, but we know who Thrawn is. That's why we're talking about him. (laughs) I feel like that was just him kind of getting to Eli's level and just being like, yes, and whether we're about to die. Parentheses. You realize it's not. not what I'm thinking about, right? But yeah, we can worry about that for sure. There is the the confidence around him where, you know, he might just be agreeing with Eli for the sake of agreeing with, with Eli uh, and, and nothing more to it. The scene cuts to we're back with Price and her parents and they hear that the Imperial assault has begun potentially where we have a good tactical mind moment from price here where from where she can see the imperial troops hadn't entered the city they hadn't started you know their forward assault into the city she can hear blaster fire going on but she realizes all right if they're not moving it's because they were ordered to do so and that means that where the blaster fire is coming from they're probably creating a diversion for another squad to come in. She kind of pieces together Thrawn's plan here, where the reason that these people that I'm seeing in the distance are not approaching in is because this is a diversion, and they're probably sending someone in to get me. And then she realizes that if that's the case, if there is a squad who has this diversion for them to get into the city to find her, if they get to her parents' house, they're going to see Gudry's body. (gasps) And we see here another mistake from Price, where she couldn't have anticipated that they would send a squad in to get her. She did nothing to hide the body. It was all about getting out as quickly as possible, not bothering to cover her tracks. This is as crucial of a mistake as can possibly be, because she's realizing there is a low percent chance that she's going to be able to talk her way out of this if they find this dead Imperial agent and Price and her parents are missing. Yeah, right now she's technically a, for, for a brief moment, she's a fugitive of the Empire. She's, yeah. <laughs> she's a treasonous governor right now. It's, it's a weird window for her to be in. Price knows that this is a bad look. Uh, and so they're approaching the insurgent's picket line of defense. And before they reach there, she's able to place some explosives on a nearby truck because she realizes that there's little chance that they're going to get past these insurgent guards. And so we have this scene where as her father is trying to approach this guard, Price detonates the explosives on the truck. And when, you know, when the explosion goes off, her parents turn to face the explosion, the guard turns to face the explosion, and Price walks up to the guard and kills him right there. It's (laughs) Another one down. Yeah. And we see her kill another person here and you know she doesn't have the same connection to him as she did to Gudry who was an agent of the empire but we see some consequences here where 
her mother asked, like, what what just happened to him? And Price is like, oh, he probably got hit by shrapnel from the explosion. And her father walks up to the body as she's trying to get them to keep moving. And he gets, just stands there. And we see that Price notices when he turns away finally to walk with them to the, you know, outside of the city to where the Imperial troops are, she notices that there is, quote, pain and revulsion in his eyes. And we gather that he's slowly piecing together what Price is doing and what she's become. Yeah, it's kind of horrific that the guy who was like, it's your dance recitals, like you're the most important part of our life. Also, Arinda, maybe you are a bad liar because you set off an explosion, killed a guy and then said, yeah, shrapnel might have gotten him. Like, I know Zahn didn't do a great job at like painting the distance they were from the explosion, but I just imagined like there's no way they're they're so close that shrapnel would have gotten this guy. Like that was just such a like out of your back pocket lie that's not going to work, but but yeah, to go back to that though, it's it's a tense moment. I feel like I use that word a lot this chapter, but your daughter's an imperial monster, dude. That is the reality of this situation. Like she's doing things that you would not be happy with. It sucks. Her parents are seeing her as you're saying. There's Shrapnel, really? Like, you know, her her dad has inspected the body, kind of, you know, standing over it, and we gather that he's not buying that. He doesn't say it, and he doesn't end up saying a lot more. She's showing her hand in this tension, in this desperation. You know, she's told another quick lie that doesn't have a lot behind it. Again, the second time this chapter, and she's killing people now to get her way. This is a whole new ballgame, and and it's just really powerful to see her parents piece together what is happening and what she's turned into effectively. Yeah. And so she and her parents do reach the outer part of the city where they're met by naval troopers, and they inform Price that, yeah, there was a squad sent in to get you. They left 20 minutes ago, and Price is realizing 20 minutes, that's more than enough time (laughs) to have found the body by now. And they take her and her parents to their mobile HQ, and we're back on the Chimera Bridge with this next scene. Can I pause really quickly before we come back to the Chimera? I should have brought it up earlier, but when they get to the insurgent checkpoint and they have to talk to the guard, and he's like, you know, IDs, please. Something I really liked about this scene was we've spent our entire lives growing up with Star Wars and seeing rebels in this exact same scenario with Imperials and just, you know, sneaking in and sleuthing out. And it yeah. was it was really honestly cool to see this on an imperial side, but more specifically, like it's not a gung ho soldier of the empire, it's not a stormtrooper, or a scout, or anything. It's a fucking governor and her parents. And so again, for a brief moment, she is a. I know they don't really know she's done anything, but for a very brief moment, she is quietly an enemy of the empire, technically speaking, based off what she's done. And she's got to sneak out. It's just really, really interesting seeing this high level imperial agent with civilians doing basically what the good guys have always done. And it's it's probably the closest to the rebels she'll ever get by way of uh, circumstances. But yeah, it was just it was just a really cool scene. I really enjoyed it a lot. And then, yeah, the, the naval officers just being like, halt! And they're like, oh, Governor Price, hi! Anyway, yeah. That's... Yeah, no, that, that's really cool. I, I like that, how it's very much like a flip of what we've seen in like the movies and the Rebels TV show, where kind of the tables have turned, and this is an the imperial inverse. governor that's the word. trying to sneak on by. You know, you're right, this is the closest that she'll ever come to um, <laughs> being similar to the Rebels. Um, for family, it's very, these are good values at, you know, maybe at their core, where she's doing this for family, and but she's doing the wrong things for family, um, as we will 
see. Or yeah. as we have seen, what ends up happening is for her reasons uh, solely. But I guess, the, you know, this next scene on the Chimera is... Yeah, beam us up, Scotty. Take us there. Uh, it's pretty straightforward where the TIE fighters that were hidden in the repair barges end up attacking the insurgent ships from behind. They had been loaned by uh, Admiral Durrell, who probably wanted a hand in the victory. That was my thought. There's <laughs> yeah, no course. other reason he'd want to help out Thrawn rather, you know, other than to say... I played a part there too. You know, if it wasn't for my TIE fighters, they would have been killed. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was it was a cool moment where, you know, Thrawn knew that that was the case, and and to see Eli and Commander Pharaoh piece that together. Wait, are those like? And he's like, Yep, those are those are TIE fighters, <laughs> and they're able to overpower the attacking ships. And from the viewport, as the battle is going in the Imperials' favor, now they see an explosion from Bataan, from Paragosto City. And it's this massive blast, and everyone just freezes. In the thick of the battle, everyone just freezes, and it's just this dead silence. And what had happened was that Price had detonated the explosives in the Creek Path facility, but since the shield had still been up, the explosion was contained by the shield and deflected outwards into the city and destroyed all the civilian homes with it. And I was floored when this happened. What were your thoughts? It was described so perfectly that it really, I mean, floored, livid, filled with rage. It was so perfectly placed that it really, it felt like the battle slowed down. It felt like I, I felt like I was on the viewport and just you hear it and you turn around and you just see this dome of a firestorm just billowing up and inside of itself. And it's just everyone on deck is like, we didn't do that. Like we are the baddies, but we did not do that. And it's, it's crazy. Like Arinda, I like, this is something I could empathize with her in you know a few a few scenarios in this book with what she's done but this is something entirely else where the only reason that she did this was because she knew in her thinking the squad cannot report to the imperials that they have found a dead isb agent if they never get the chance to do that she killed an entire complex of people to kill a small group of people to find out she had murdered Exactly. To cover her name, to cover her tracks. And and it just took out, I don't know if it was the whole city. I don't know if it was, because I know that there was a scene where civilians were kind of fleeing underneath the shield. So it it wasn't the whole city, but still, it's a massive chunk of Paragosto City and the facility and a lot of innocent lives all to cover her tracks. We've seen her kill individual people in this chapter but this like she jumped she made the jump i want to call it a trope but it's also i feel like it's it's also most likely a very unfortunate life lesson for somebody is you know the more you kill the easier it gets and she she doesn't climb down that ladder she's holding onto both sides and just slides all the way down it just like body one body two a town and it's the city. crazy <laughs> it's a city it's literally a city i keep calling it a town it's my, that's my unfortunate use of the jargon I just had zero words. I think my jaw dropped. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot to fathom. It's a lot to take in. And we, uh, towards the end of this chapter, we see that, you know, she thinks to herself that, all right, she did not intend it to be that bad, but she says that it served its purpose. She thinks to herself it served its purpose. And that's all that mattered to her. That's all that's ever mattered to her as her character has progressed. If it serves the purpose that she's aiming for, that's all that matters. And her parents are 
are distraught. You know, her mom is does not know what to make of this, she says. And her father hasn't said a word since before she killed the insurgent. And, um, you know, he, he's just been silent. And she does put them on a shuttle to fly back to Lothal. I thought back to the inner monologue at the beginning of this chapter before it closes out, where it made me think of her father, where the inner monologue says that sometimes the victory is greater than the warrior could ever have hoped for. Sometimes it is more than he is able to bear. And for all that she's done for her family in this chapter and the chapters leading up to this, she's pretty much broken her father. From his reactions, from his expressions, he is just dead silent. You know, this is the culmination of him seeing what his daughter has become. And I thought, yeah, she she's broken her dad. Yeah. Something that I like is to kind of pair what is going on with her father to go backwards a few chapters very briefly um, is the conversation between Signy and Thrawn. And mm. Signy kind of mentions that, like, he didn't start out wanting a rebellion but, you know, he starts to see this oppression and he starts to do what any person wants to do to kind of like get rid of it. He just he talks about the casualties and he talks about how serious he is about it. And it's just when we meet her dad, he's not a revolutionary, but he's he's very clearly he's like the government's corrupt and we need to do like something needs yeah. to be done about it. And now he's just it sucks that he's just like I I'm, I'm sure he's not thinking something needs to be done about my daughter, but it just is really it's horrible that he has to like juggle these thoughts and philosophies of knowing his government is corrupt. And also knowing that his his daughter is a well-oiled cog, happily working for it, and also clearly is a, a product of, of the environment that she has been working in. From the beginning of the chapter where he's talking about the dance recitals that she was part of and saying that she is the most important part of their life. To, <laughs> it's really sad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it is. Like, she has... Because they've been there for, for some time now. Her parents have been on Bataan for some time now, and... It doesn't say in the text whether her mom or dad knew that it was she who had detonated the explosives. Her mom thinks that it was the Empire, and her dad just isn't saying anything. I think that we can piece that her dad kind of puts two and two together, where she's killed an agent, she's killed an insurgent. There's no reason for me to think that this wasn't the actions of my daughter. And for her, at, at the beginning of the chapter, being their world, being the most important of their life, to all of a sudden, at the end of the chapter, her literally destroying literally blowing up their life. It was just a really powerful stuff. And she took out the city and, um, you know, she summoned to the Chimera. Yularen meets her there at the HQ. And that is how the chapter ends. Uh, I just, it seems every motivation that she had, you know, uh, the beginning motivation to get her family's mind back and, and fight for family, that is overshadowed now by, you know, back when she closed down the mine and now you know the only thing left tying her to anything that we could possibly relate to was her bond with her family and now she has kind of just shattered that you know yeah. she sends them to Lothal her mom is, is listening to what she's saying but her dad is effectively just a broken man at this point uh, yeah. and it's just a really powerful chapter a really powerful sequence of events to close it out do you have any last thoughts on 28 before we head into 29 God, I can't wait to get to 29. But in regards to 28, no, I don't. I can give my chapter summary for 29 and we can Take it dive away. right into that. Aboard the Chimera, Price debriefs Yularen and Thrawn about the events planetside. Eli and Yularen are suspicious of Price, seeing that she managed to escape with her parents 
while Gudri went missing. Yularen informs Thrawn that Night Swan's body was found in the wreckage, ending his threat to the Empire. After Thrawn is told he has been summoned to the Imperial Palace to convene with the Emperor, he requests a word with Price alone. Sensing Thrawn's intentions to accuse her of the deadly Creek Path explosion, Price goes on the offensive. She asserts that regardless of his suspicion, Thrawn needs her to make sure his political path moving forward is as smooth as possible. She also admits to Thrawn that she needs his help dealing with rebels on Lothal. At the Imperial Palace, Thrawn inquires about the Death Star to Palpatine and is promoted to the rank of Grand Admiral. And we'll get to that awesome <laughs> moment. <laughs> um, Again, just he just hearing the recap, I'm like, right? <laughs> some of the best chapters in the book! <laughs> they really are. They really are. And I think this chapter, I think it is all, or most of it is in Thrawn's perspective, from Thrawn's point of view. It is a really great chapter for Price and her character, I think. Yes, it is. In how she handles herself in, in the face of kind of looking to clean up this mess. So, yeah, we are in the conference room and seeing a guy like Yularen, he's been really poised, he's, he's been really composed throughout the book, just this stoic figure. And he says, and I quote, I saw some horrendous things during the Clone Wars. This ranks right up there with the worst of them. And seeing him just shocked and shaken and in and, and disbelief, it was we just see the gravity of what's happened and it's it's taken a toll on everyone it seems it's a little bow wrapped up on just the horrors of what just happened it, right we were just talking about how just it's everything was decimated her father a broken man and now we get to the chimera and it's another person who's just saying this is in the list of the worst things i've ever seen and the clone wars was pretty freaking terrible by the way like, we spoke about how just truly dramatic the explosion was written up in the circumstance. And then just to just to end it from someone else's perspective who has seen equally horrible things and just to tell us, like, you have the correct assessment of this. It was just as bad as you think it was. Coming from a guy like Yularen, because you're right, he has seen some terrible things in the Clone Wars. And Eli has reflected on that earlier in the book, I think, when uh, the whole Bodajeff uh, chapter where they were trying to secede and he thought back to how terrible the clone wars were and Yularen is saying that here and there, there's probably few circumstances where where an entire city was just decimated where and Yularen says that m there were more civilians who died than insurgents far yes. outweighed the insurgent numbers this part it's so hard to, so hard of an event to swallow. And, and looking at Price, that was kind of the moment. If, if you weren't already broken by, you know, by her at some point in the book, this is, you know, how do you even justify that? And it is purely to cover up her tracks. And in fairness, she knows that they can't prove anything that she did. She is kind of covered all tracks of her being the cause of the explosion. And, you know, she's not putting a foot wrong in this chapter necessarily, because Thrawn's a little suspicious as we end up gathering. Yularen, at least, is being very outward in his suspicion towards Price. We, we get this moment um, before Price really gets involved where Yularen tells Thrawn that Night Swan's body was found, and this is a very interesting quote here from Thrawn. He thinks to himself, and I quote, The song of Night Swan was silenced, and the galaxy would be the worst for its loss. And we're seeing Thrawn mourning the loss of Night Swan inwardly, because he knew how good of a mind he was. 
it's really intriguing that he thinks the galaxy is now in a worse spot with the death of this insurgent leader. Yeah. And showing this this conflict between his loyalties to the Empire and you know, kind of his loyalties outside of that. But again, to go back to Knight of the Cygni slash the Night Swan and Thrawn meeting, it, it kind of felt like this, like this meeting of like the eternal ballerina dancers, right? Like they finally <laughs> come to tow and they get to discuss things. And Thrawn tries to recruit him. And the fact that he was able to see, the fact that so many times Thrawn said, oh, it was clearly an invitation. And I'm referring to like previous, you know, uh, moments and situations. And Eli would kind of be left going, yeah, but was it an invitation though? Do you think you're like kind of obsessing, but I don't want to give you that doubt because you've, you've been right the whole time, but you realize why it kind of seems like you're painting your own narrative to evidence to prove that you're right. And just the fact that when he finally got to meet him, he tries to recruit him and then he dies. And he's, he's left, like you said, he's left saying the galaxy is worse for it. And it kind of shows that like none of this was in Thrawn's head. It seems like it to us because we don't think this way and we don't see things the way he does. But Thrawn, as a chiss, he gets to read emotion. He gets to read yeah. where your blood is flowing and what the indications and what the inflection is based on tone, based on what your skin flush is. And it's an incredible talent. And just the fact that he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. He's only reading the immediate and trying to brace for the worst tomorrow. It really sucks that he's acknowledging that like the next yesterday we get is going to be worse because Signy wasn't there to help us. Looking at it not through an imperial lens, but just through an objective, logical standpoint that there yeah. are few minds, if any other minds in the galaxy who are able to challenge Thrawn like, like you were talking about to, you know, the only one to really play the game, do the dance with Thrawn at close to Thrawn's own level and now that you know that song is silenced that that guy is 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 gone and uh pharaoh comes in over the intercom kind of uh, breaks the conversation <laughs> there uh saying that hey Thrawn you're being summoned uh, to Coruscant Papa Palps wants to have a chat with you <laughs> Papa Palps <laughs> Papa Pelps. Um, so we know that's going to be a good scene to end the chapter. Can I ask us to pause really quickly to cover a bit that we we glanced over? So I, I want to give a quote really quick, or, okay. a, or a series of quotes. This is this this quote comes before Thrawn realizes that uh, the Night Swan uh, has ended its song, and it's it goes back to the quote you used. Yularen says, "I saw some horrendous things during the Clone Wars. This ranks up there with the worst of them." Thrawn then asks, "You have the numbers?" And Yularen says, "Yes, sir." As you can see, the number of civilian deaths far exceed the number of insurgents killed. And afterwards, Governor Price chimes in with this just scoff. And she says, well, how do we know which were which? This was a civilian uprising after all. And then Yalaren chimes in and says, well, we can assume the people inside the central cordon and the ones holding weapons on the sentry lines were insurgents. The people in their houses when the firestorm blew them apart probably weren't a part of this. And Price just doesn't care. She's gone. She is officially an Imperial governor. Congratulations. You've got the accolade and you're a great cog in the Imperial machine. They're going to be so happy to have you on their team. It would have been yeah. really great if we could have had somebody as clever as you on ours, though. And it's it just it kind of fucking hurts, man. Like to see someone bad so good at what they do and just on the wrong side of the table. There's been multiple parts in the book where I've thought what would Thrawn look like had he been on the other side you know what what would that God. have been like and 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 price <laughs> had a lot of moments in this book where she had thrawn like tactical moments here but this is a perfect example where she does not care 
about the civilians that died. This shows that she would never be on the other side. What she has become is just not capable of that because, you know, in chapter 28, she knew that killing those civilians doesn't matter if they far outweighed the number of insurgents, it served the purpose that she needed it to be. And she had thought that when she was rushing her father back to her parents' house to get her mother, where she had seen all the civilians flocking in under the shield, and she wondered, you know, how many of them would live to see the next day, and how that didn't matter to her. This part just reminds me of Rogue One so much, man. It's, it just, yeah. it, it feels grounded, I think, is, is the problem. Doesn't feel like science fantasy, feels like a grounded circumstance involving civilians in a politically in, uh, entangled galaxy. We get this really great scene where Thrawn holds Price back for a moment and uh, she's asking him you know, a question, Admiral, and he says, a statement, Governor. And Price just responds, no. That's not how you bring an accusation against a powerful member of the Imperial government. And she ends up going off in the face of Thrawn. Who, and as she's being defiant, she's being confident in herself. This is kind of what we have come to expect from her, where she just gives it to Thrawn in this moment where uh, I'd mentioned in the in the summary where she's kind of turning the tables on him, like saying, you need me. When they had met in the diner back when Price reached out to Thrawn saying, I need your help. This is kind of the reverse of that, where she's saying this is a need based partnership where I will tell you why you need me. Even if I need you for help back on my planet, you can't get rid of me because I'm too important to your path as well. What were your thoughts on on Price really taking it to Thrawn here? All right. Thought number one, I was pissed because it felt strange. And I guess since the whole thing is from Thrawn's perspective, I guess what we're supposed to do, having read through this whole book at this point, almost, almost, excuse me, we're supposed to infer that Price is aware of the the very silent allegations coming at her because at that war table everyone is looking at her it's very clear secondly uh, and and price's response is well what are you implying thrawn only asked her for a moment of time for a statement and while we know what that's inferring it's just interesting seeing a character actually act on such paranoia and then just go for broke on it not even act like i might have read the room wrong it's just, this is my inference, and I'm going to start screaming. No, she's not screaming, but I'm just going to flood you. She says, you need me. First off, that's a very interesting accusation yeah. to have with this, because I guess ultimately I do kind of feel like, while I don't want to admit it, I feel like Price might be the only political player in Thrawn's neighborhood that he can use just because of, you know, history and, and experience together. Sure. Um, but it's very, very interesting that she's just like, that's not the way you do this. This is the way you do this. I'm the one that has these things. You do not. You're not allowed to talk to me about what you think happened because I'm the one with all the cards. And he's just silent. And he's like, oh, is that is that so? You And what, what political power might I need? Or, it was a lot of emotions, man. I was livid at the way she treated Thrawn because I felt like it was so... Yeah. It was just... It was a baseless rage that she had on him and also maybe that was an appropriate reaction of i just did a lot of really horrible things i've been holding it in the whole time and now i'm just and scared of getting release. caught and i'm blowing up and it's yeah, yeah. it was a lot <laughs> yeah it was god now I, i'm stressed I, out yeah. about it again thanks andy <laughs> yeah i think it's interesting where I, I remember when i was reading this i was kind of licking my chops like oh he's about to show her how he knows that she did it that was what i thought and, was gonna happen I just, I love how those expectations were turned on their head, where Price yeah. took 
that moment and made it her own where, you know, she kind of walked all over Thrawn in this moment where, you know, he said very little in this whole interaction where she she's kind of just giving her case. You know, she, she did present, like you're saying, that he needs her specifically. And I think that's a fair point where out of all of the political figures that Thrawn has interacted with, his best point of partnership could probably be with Price, given that they've already had a, a slight history together in this book of, of dealing with each other and her seeking his help earlier and him getting her help as well with uh, the expedited repairs on his ship earlier. I loved it. I uh, My thoughts were, where was this Price in Rebels? Which I'm not going to get into. That is that is a <laughs> rabbit hole. But yeah, she pretty much just just pointed out to Thrawn, you know, this is why you need me. I can smooth out your path from here. Your track record does not speak in your favor as far as politics go, which is a fair point from Price. Yeah. You know, every time Thrawn has gotten involved with politics or politics have gotten in, uh, involved with him, he's needed some help along the way. And I think that it was very smart from Price being like, I can be that figure in your circle who can make sure that's as smooth as possible for you. And I'm probably the only one that can do that for you. And and I think that she's right, establishing that need-based partnership here. She ends up asking him or telling him that she does need help of her own because there are rebels on Lothal, uh, which uh, <gasps> I thought was a cool callback, you know, saying <laughs> yeah. that Admiral Constantine is not doing a good job dealing with insurgents on my planet which was, you know, there's our, our little connection uh, point to Rebels again. And Thrawn does ask fairly, you know, what could be in this for me? You know, as a, I can help you there, you can smooth my path out. What's there more for me? And she tells him that the Seventh Fleet might need a replacement fleet admiral. Well, she's telling him this is one of the kind of like the hotshot fleets of the Empire that gets sent to deal with all the important conflicts. And she asks him if he really thinks that there is another officer in the Navy who could take charge of that fleet and limit the casualties as much as he can. If there's anyone who even cares about limiting casualties as much as Thrawn does. And I thought this was a smart moment from Price where she's playing on kind of that sense of efficiency from Thrawn where he's not about throwing lives away. And he knows, okay, if Admiral Durrell takes charge of the Seventh Fleet, these are needless lives that are going to be lost from the Imperial perspective. That was a good card that was placed by Price saying, I know that you care about preserving the lives of our troops, and you're the only one who can really do that in charge of the Seventh Fleet, and I can probably get you that position. That was a good card played by Price, I thought. You're not wrong. I I think ultimately it's funny. I think I, I, I read a lot of this with like more malicious intent. But honestly, hearing your, your take on it is kind of helping me like calm down about it and just be like, okay, she wasn't attacking him too much. But yeah, honestly, it's it's a very good card that she played. You're absolutely correct in that. Like she's also kind of like the fact that she's using like loss of like needless life in a ship that's orbiting a planet that just had a city bombed is kind of a like weird placement on that conversation of just like, you know, yeah. <laughs> they're over the grave of potentially hundreds of thousands. And she's just like, hey, you could prevent more of this thing that didn't happen today, but you could prevent it on another day for sure. She's making good points and Thrawn recognizes that. He's saying, you've made some points, I'll consider them. This is a very big win for Price where she knows that Thrawn probably can guess that she is the cause of the deaths on Bataan, but that he can't prove it. 
And even if he could, he needs her and she can also grant him or help grant him a position that would ensure that he can save imperial lives uh, from being needlessly wasted. And it's a, a great chapter from price unfortunately very much opposite <laughs> of expectations and so yeah he's he's left to consider these offers that price has given him and the closing scene of this chapter takes us to the imperial throne room where we're opening with thrawn walking in with a new uniform he's got a white uniform with a gold shoulder bars and silver <laughs> collar insignia and i was like yes 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 Grand you have to Admiral close up and look thrawn. at the cover and be like that's you that's it you've got the uniform dude <laughs> it was such a great moment where it, palpatine is holding out his ranks for him to take but Thrawn kind of presses the brakes here, which was a very interesting twist to this interaction where before he takes the ranks and he can see that Palpatine is a little disappointed that he didn't, you know, accept the ranks you know, right away. And he's saying, tell me about the Death Star, taking it right to Palpatine, oh. just as he did when he first met him. He was being bold then. He's being bold now, really pressing the issue with the Emperor. Yeah, I thought that was bold is the perfect word for it. Because it's just like, if you knew who he was based on how we knew who he was, like, I wouldn't speak to Palpatine that way. I'd like to say that I would, but I know I'd be shaking in my boots. He didn't do that earlier. He didn't do that now. And it ends up being a very interesting conversation here where Palpatine acknowledges that the Death Star exists after asking Thrawn, how does he know that exists? And Thrawn was able to piece it together. I think he found the name from like a loose transmission, which, you know, kind of lazy from the Empire with uh, covering (laughs) that information up. Uh, I just, I just, (laughs) someone sent me, send a text to a wrong number. And (laughs) 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 Um, I heard the, heard a phone call from the other room and I was like, oh, Death Star. Interesting. Um, He's concerned to the purpose of the Death Star, which I thought was very interesting here. And and Palpatine realizes that, too, that Thrawn is wondering what the Emperor will use it for. And he's concerned that the Emperor might use it against the Chiss one day. And, you know, this is kind of like another point of Thrawn's maybe divided loyalties where he's all about serving the Empire. But we see this hesitation if the Emperor is going to use this weapon, this super weapon against his own people. Thrawn's not holding back here, and the Emperor kind of realized that he is trying to protect his people, and Thrawn's not really trying to hide that here. And it very much kind of threw me for a loop as well how gracious of a host the Emperor is with Mithra Nuadu. Because it's <laughs> it's interesting, it's a different version of the Emperor that we've never seen that side of him before. It's almost like he it's almost like he speaks to Thrawn the way we're used to Palpatine speaking with Anakin or, you know, kind of like saving face with the Jedi council or Padme. It's really interesting that he hears it and he goes, so you don't want me to use it against your people. And he's like, Oh, I won't, I don't hold that against you. You've also never given us the locations, although you have helped us, you know, map, you know, deep space uh, hyperlanes, which is fantastically helpful. And then he just kind of chalks it up and he says like, I have no devices against the Chiss ascendancy. Like fear not for that kind of thing. And he kind of like waves it off with just like, you can take my word for it. He almost seems good. It's almost like he's putting on this face of just someone who's like, Oh, that's a fair, that's a fair thing to be afraid of, but no worries, dude, we're good. I'm not, not coming after them. Because it does seem like a very casual conversation with the Emperor. You know, like you're saying, he says that he has no intentions of using it against the Chiss. I wonder how much of that is 
him maybe trying to manipulate Thrawn there yeah. to believe him if he's actually being truthful. We gather that there is a trade of information here where uh, you know, Thrawn has helped him map out hyperspace lanes in the unknown regions, which I was wondering, is that kind of a plug for how he was able to know about Exegol in Rise of Sky, like <laughs> getting into the unknown regions Holy there? Holy crap! Because Thrawn is helping him to, to map out the unknown regions, and I thought of that, like, does that tie into that in any way? I, I don't know. I thought that was really cool. Dude, I didn't think about that. That's awesome. But, you know, I don't know if Thrawn knows about Exegol, you know, being a, a, a Sith world. But yeah, he, he has never disclosed the location of the Ascendancy to Palpatine and like you're saying Palpatine seems cool with that which you know I don't know if we'll ever know if it's Palpatine just trying to play it off like oh I, I have no intention of that or if he's actually being legit but it was a pretty casual conversation in that regards where you know there, there seems to be a mutual respect here which I think you it's really hard to get that from Palpatine it but is Thrawn seems to have done it but to some extent. My read of this, though, is just, you know, with all of our time spent with Sheev Palpatine, I honestly, like, I, keep, I, I know I just said this, but it really feels like this is him acting again. Kind of like the way mm. he acts with the Imperial Senate, which is a way we never get to see. That's just talked about, you know what I mean? But it, it seems very, especially with, like, the very last part of the scene, which I, I know you'll hook us up with that, but with what's about to come, it feels very much like he's just, you know, setting the table and being like, oh, you came. Here's your medallion. Take your shoes off at the door, please. And let's talk about <laughs> things. And you you tell me how the space is being for you. And it just, it seems like a, like a fake version. If, I mean, we know how deceitful he is with the Force. I think he's able to pull that off with Thrawn, unfortunately. That's a really fair point, because we have every reason to think that Palpatine would only be acting in his own interest here, where he is very, you know, he played Anakin, he could be playing Thrawn, and Thrawn doesn't have, you know, the kind of like the Force abilities to, to sense that push in the Force, to even feel those motives. Uh, as much as he can read body language, Palpatine has another level on him with, yeah you know having that maybe manipulation with the aid of like the force and able to cloud thrawn's vision from that maybe to shield him from that I like how you hinted to what happens next because you know after thrawn is kind of finds some peace and the emperor's response about you know the, the chiss won't be harmed by this death star he takes the ranks and he is thus grand admiral thrawn and the chapter ends with a, a door to the side of the throne room <laughs> opening and through it walks a tall character in dark armor and a cape and Darth <laughs> Vader joins the conversation and he and Thrawn meet at the end of the book. Thrawn and Darth Vader meet to close out this chapter. Darth Vader showed up. <laughs> That's so good. Didn't see it coming. Neither did I. <laughs> and again, also just like, the Emperor's response, it's like the door opens, a figure clad in black armor and a cape comes in, filled with confidence. If nothing else, confidence. And I'm just imagining the Emperor with his T-Rex arms and just like, Ah, Lord Vader, come, come, this is my blue friend I talked, I told you about. I met him at the Kroger uh, checkout line. We're talking. <laughs> and it just, I know, it just seems like a weird pairing of characters in a room. Like, what I else know. do they talk about after this? Is it just... Even like a chiss going, well, this is a lot of the the Sith do just stand and brood in darkness. Do you guys like sports or you know, <laughs> yeah. who talks first? You talk first, I talk first. <laughs> 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 because it is so casual from Palpatine where he's like, ah, Lord Vader, you know, come join us. And like, 
like how often does this happen? Does he did he know that Vader was going to show up? Like <laughs> I know. it seems it seemed overly casual from Palpatine. And maybe you're right. Maybe it is this this air that he's creating to try and deceive Thrawn. It just seems so uh, both in character and out of character for for Palpatine just being this kind of puppet master and and putting up Damn this him. front where Thrawn knows that he's a bad guy. He talked about that with Night Swan. He, he knows that he's, you know, he's got some evil motives, but it's just, uh, it was a interesting cards played by Palpatine in, in this last little bit and just a very casual end, just like, oh, Vader, come join us. Come, come talk with us. And we don't know what they talk about from there on after he and, after Vader and Thrawn meet, because that, that is where chapter 29 ends um and he, what is he keep talking i'm so sorry oh i was gonna ask if you got any closing thoughts on 29 before we talk about this little epilogue we got yeah the epilogue um i mean it's really i'm sitting here flipping through trying to get to it it's just a really good way to end it if i may quote it the emperor goes like vader come join us i don't believe you've met darth vader grand admiral thrawn and thrawn says you were correct your excellency i greet you lord vader and vader says grand admiral and Thrawn says, I've heard a great deal about you. I'm pleased we finally met. And Vader says, yes, as am I. End. <laughs> it's so good. It really is. Because we've got Palpatine in this book. We got Tarkin. The last piece was Vader. It and was. right at the end, we get that. Uh, and three really great characters just convening at the end. Uh, and I just love that we get that little, um, you know, it's the, the ending with Lord Vader. Um, yeah. And that closes out the... The chapter before we get to this epilogue i don't have a summary here for the epilogue is it you know it's very like it's... short kind of speaks for itself it does there is a, an internal monologue to begin it i wonder if i can read a little bit of it go for it He's... it's a beautiful it's a beautiful bit the monologue goes or at least the section of the monologue goes and i quote a friend need not be kept within sight or within reach a friend must be allowed the freedom to find and follow his path if one is fortunate those paths will for a time join. But if the paths separate, it is comforting to know that a friend still graces the universe with his skills and his viewpoint and his presence. For if one is remembered by a friend, one is never truly gone. This tugged at my heartstrings here, and Thrawn is thinking to himself that he is admitting that he formed a friend in Eli. I just would never have expected that level of emotional connection from Thrawn where he's recognizing that Eli was in his eyes a true friend. Yeah. That's what you you read that part and like you said it tugs at your heartstrings and you, that is the end of the page and you flip it and literally the next section is just Eli read the entry a second time. Then with a sigh he shut down his data pad and it's just like it's all the more beautiful is just that like he's holding on to these journal entries from Thrawn at the end of this entire quest where you know it's the, the our campaign is done and the player is sitting there reading it again and he's just thrown thought of me as a friend it's so nice which is probably the only friend that eli had yeah in, in all the events that happened you know, the only true friend that he had and just looking back on on how they you know, their relationship ebbed and flowed and you know Eli for a long time didn't even want to have anything to do with Thrawn and here at the end you know first of all he has access to all of these internal monologues uh, all these little quips and quotes from from Thrawn which I think is really awesome yeah but just uh it really yeah it, it tugged at my heartstrings man uh, just how 
he and Thrawn ended up as friends to each other, which is, is very hard to come by in the Empire, especially coming from a Chiss. And Eli is in this ship. He's following these coordinates that Thrawn had left him. And you know, he's, he's looking at the numbers on the screen. And we get this like a very Thrawn-like moment for him where he's... He, I'm just going to read it here. And I quote, Numbers were at the heart of everything that made the universe function. They spoke to a grand symphony of people, humans and non-humans alike, of worlds and trade routes, of the lifeblood of good and evil alike. Eli had his numbers, Thrawn had his art, and neither skill could be fully understood by anyone else. And I just love how, as different as Eli and Thrawn were, they had their own connection to art, to numbers that was their own. And they both respected that from each other. And it was just, I I love that writing here where Eli is at the culmination of all this in his own way, you know, become very Thrawn-like in certain ways. Yeah, it's something I liked was there's a flip in personal response that the reader gets, right? The whole time we're going through this book, you're kind of going, well, what is happening with Eli, though? Like, as he grew, you know, we've talked about this. You've spoken about it with all of your guests. It's like, it kind of seems like Eli's being groomed, right? That's the question we're always asking ourselves. And if so, what for? And then another thing, too, is that, like, that also kind of shows us, like, a question I think that also comes up with the reader is, like, does Thrawn really care about Eli? Or is there some kind of, you know, sociopolitical or, I guess, like, a career-based um, manipulation happening. And then you get to this end and you the, the epilogue opens with what we've already discussed, which is the definition of friendship by Thrawn's measure. And you flip the page and Eli sees it. And boom, there's our first answer is Thrawn this whole time thought of Eli as a friend, which is beautiful. And then we go down. It's the next part that you just read off, which is Eli's looking at the numbers on the, um, on the screen. And now we get this other thing, this other answer of the question, which was like, what was going on between these two? And you realize... It was the fact that they they viewed the world similarly, but Eli needed a bit of a push. And it was kind yeah. of this, like, just very quiet response to these questions that I think the reader is left with as they're going through, or is, is given as they're going through the book. And I thought it was so beautifully put together. We get there and we go, that's the answer we, we were hoping for. That's This is fantastic. And I love it. That is a good question, though, because I thought many times, you know, if Thrawn, we know that he he treated people as assets generally speaking yeah. uh, throughout the book yeah we see here like you're saying that he act you know he did think of eli as a friend not as an asset not as a tool as a friend and i i think it's a very powerful way to you know kind of culminate their relationship here at the end of the book after this whole journey where like you're saying all eli needed was a push to recognize what he could become we saw what price became you know, when she kind of pushed herself to those moments and Eli, you know, kind of just being pushed along by Thrawn, you know, he was able to kind of spread his own wings at, at a few times in this book. And, and now we're seeing just the, what that looks like in his own thoughts at the end where he's able to recognize how he can be like Thrawn in his own way. He, he'll never be yeah. perfectly like Thrawn. Uh, you know, he recognizes that Thrawn has his art and he has his numbers and yeah. and that's kind of like the language that speaks to them in, in a very unique way um and to top off what thrawn has been grooming him for <laughs> eli comes out of hyperspace to this uh different looking ship a ship he's never seen before and a figure appears on his uh, on, on a hologram hailing him and it's uh Admiral Arlani of the Chiss Defense Fleet and Thrawn had sent Eli to the Ascendancy. Wow. (laughs) 
Wow. The fact that it's called the Chiss Ascendancy and then just Eli getting to go there felt very much like a like a a personal and professional ascension of his own. It was Yeah. Also, this entire this little epilogue, I have you seen the movie uh, Interstellar? I have, yeah. Excellent. That this entire epilogue reminded me of a very <laughs> specific moment of the movie that I will hold Close in the event that someone listening has not seen it yet. I highly recommend Years later. That. Years. <laughs> dude, it happens. It happens. But um, it does, it does. But yeah, I just, I thought it was beautiful. And also just that, that visual of him just like sitting there with the data pad in his hand and he's reading it over again. And he puts it down, punches in the numbers and looks at the numbers and watches as everything flows through. And that's when he acknowledges that like his understanding of patterns in the cosmos of existence is in numbers. And it's, it runs through and he punches through to hyperspace and he's just boom met with this big ship that he's never seen before yeah we're kind of just left with eli having arrived at the uh, at the ascendancy and and wondering what that is going to look like and, and if you know what his grooming will look like in that context and that is where the book ends but yeah are there any closing thoughts that you've got that you'd like to share you know this is the culmination of of what's been an awesome journey with looking at Thrawn and Eli's relationship as the book has gone on and looking to see prices rise and fall, uh, her ebb and flow in her in her own career and what she's become, setting these two characters up for Rebels. His, when Thrawn gets introduced in Rebels, it is after his victory at Bataan. Uh, so this is very yeah. much setting the stage for that. Yeah, any thoughts as we close out? I closed this book and immediately went, son of a bitch. And I don't know if that was to Timothy Zahn. I don't know if that was to you, knowing that you're doing this podcast and having, you know, getting to have this conversation, which I'm incredibly happy to be a part of. It felt very much like the very first time I read anything of Zahn's, which was Heir to the Empire. And I walked away, in Heir to the Empire, I walked away going, wow, it felt like he truly knew the characters. Like, I felt like I was really reading the dialogue of these characters, not a fan of these characters trying to interpret their own, you know, projection of these guys. And walking away from this, having characters I know, characters I don't know, I was simply left astounded. I mean, at its core, this is good Star Wars writing. It's a fantastic story. You don't know where we're going. And as soon as it ended, I was like, well, now that I know where we are, I kind of want to go back to the beginning again and see the, I kind of want to make the puzzle all over again. It's such a brilliant ride. It has been a really incredible journey, the depth that we've gotten to these characters, and I've said it before, it's not possible to gather that kind of detail and depth from Thrawn and Price in the show, uh, so this book really, it'll always be one of my favorites, you know, this was my first dive into uh, Star Wars literature as as a young adult, um, and uh, I will always love it and the insight into the characters that it offers into ones that we've known, ones that we haven't known, and also the ties that it has to the saga that we know, the Death Star with Tarkin and Palpatine and Vader now at the end. Uh, it's It's been a fantastic read, and thank you for coming on the show for a couple of episodes now and talking about it. Thank you so much for for being a part of this, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been fan-freaking-tastic. That's awesome. If I may just like gush one more time about Timothy Zahn, man, I fucking loved it. It was awesome. Something that I really enjoyed that Zahn did, and so I know I've told you this kind of like off-camera, but as far as Disney takeover with Star Wars goes, this is my first literature in mm. uh, entry point as well. So something I loved is the merging of two eras, which is we're in the galactic, I call it the galactic oppression. My cousin and I get into this conversation all the time on whether or not that's an appropriate term. But so the galactic civil war hasn't really happened yet, though. It's the imperial takeover is officially here. And sure. what I love is the 
dozens of callbacks to the Clone Wars, right? Yeah. We had, um, I cannot remember her name right now, but it was actually the episode that I was on last with you, which was uh, the woman who takes over on the Blood Crow. I cannot remember her name. Uh, Captain Rossi. Captain Rossi. Yes, thank yep. you. Um, <laughs> I lo- You know, she comes in and she shuts Thrawn down with don't talk about the Clone Wars. Like, you were never there, so fuck off about it. Right? And then we've got Yularen, who is openly discuss- – not, not always discussing it, but I really just appreciated the two perspectives. Because I know in that last episode, yeah. I talked about whether or not Rossi actually had anything to do with the Clone Wars. Now, at the end of it, I'm kind of interested in the idea that maybe she really did. And Yularen saying, you know, I've seen a lot of horrible things. Most of them were the Clone Wars. This is now in that list. And then cutting to Rossi kind of like shutting all talk on that down with Thrawn. I kind of really appreciate the fact that like we've always seen the Clone Wars from the clones and the Jedi perspective. And then like, you know, certain insurgents like Ryloth, you know, and also Separatists in the Clone Wars show. But seeing this side of Imperial ranking officers, Imperially ranked officers, acknowledging the war in different ways i thought was very very cool and it was very interesting because it was it just kind of felt like my two favorite eras were slowly coming together to kind of hold hands and interlock and i really really liked that a lot yeah i i do love further to that point how when they were on their way to Bodajeff, how eli was thinking about the clone wars and how terrible they were and uh, everyone on the chimera's bridge was thinking about how they didn't want another Yes. Uh, another civil war. There's been multiple callbacks and just a reminder of how terrible that era was and how much of an impact it has on even the content that we are discussing now, how it still informs people's decisions and their thoughts. And, you know, even characters like Yularen, who we've seen in the Clone Wars and now is in this book, and we get his small insights here and there to, to those events. You know, as, as different as this book is, it is uh, those reminders are nice where, yeah, this is all part of that great universe that we know. Yeah. All these timelines are, you know, all these points are coming together. And great writing by Zahn and, you know, just it a, was a fan. Right. A fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He could be better. It was a, it was a little <laughs> droll in the middle, but... Uh... Mediocre. <laughs> Mediocre, for sure. But, uh, Connor, thank you so much for coming on this episode, man, for being a part of this journey. I really appreciate you making the time for us being able to talk about the book in this way. And listeners, thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media and stay up to date on our inter-season break episode schedule, feel free to give our Twitter account a follow, at Outer Rim Read Pod. And you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow our Twitter, you'll notice that we have a new cover photo, an adaptation of the cover of Master and Apprentice, drawn by Thoulis Art. I'm amazed at the job he did with that piece, and I've posted a link to his website and his Instagram page in the episode description. Go check out his work. It is so great. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. It is edited by Andrew Geha. And we will be back on September 1st, yes, September 1st at 8 a.m. Eastern Time with our first interseason break episode. So until then, sit back and enjoy. We've got some Gamorrean hooch you should try out. We're just getting started here in the Outer Rim.